Welcome to the IEEE Blockchain Podcast Series, an IEEE Digital Studio production. This new blockchain series entitled Research Notes in Blockchain is hosted by Quinn Dupont, Assistant Professor at the University College Dublin School of Business and the author of Cryptocurrencies and Blockchains. This episode features Dr. Michael Zargam, founder and CEO of Block Science. Dr. Zargam discusses how his research has led to mathematical tools that can help define the principles of crypto economic systems and address the governance and regulation of blockchain infrastructures. He further explains how blockchains, as complex systems, shape his engineering approach to crypto economics and shares his views on purpose-driven tokens and the role of engineers within the crypto space. So let's start with Maybe you could just tell me a little bit actually about your research background, because you've got a rather interesting research background, and I would like to know a little bit more about how that informs how you approach crypto economics. Sure. Uh, I'll give you the short version of the long story, which is I was studying mostly sort of mathematics in high school, like college level mathematics, and then I started doing aerospace materials which led me in the track of dealing with high uncertainty physical systems, which needed to have sort of high certainty properties where you actually made stuff and broke it to see if it worked. And then I went to college and then I started shifting over to um, control theory, multi-agent systems. I worked with a a guy named Rezal Fadi Saber, who's a basically a a multi-agent systems expert. And I did a little bit of work on social systems and a little bit of work on robotics and multi-agent control. He introduced me to Ali Jadbabai, who was at Penn at the time, and he worked on this sort of mixture of applications of these, you know, large-scale network resource allocation policies and multi-agent control applied to social and economic systems. He had appointments in computer science, engineering, and Wharton. He's now the director of socio-technical systems and the civil engineering department chair at MIT, and he still works on sort of these you know, large-scale data-driven platforms. And so my research background is largely informed by that arc. I um, bounced back and forth between sort of social systems and game theory and like how do people behave um, and how do actual computational systems distribute and scale. And in particular, my work at Penn included dynamic resource allocation uh, in networks ranging from packet routing problems to cascade failures and even believe it or not, pandemic response type analysis. Brilliant. So maybe you could tell me a little bit before we get into your, your, your specifically your paper on the foundations of crypto economic systems, maybe you could tell me a little bit more about uh, your present research, what you're up to right now, and, and maybe even say something about block science. So uh, I run a private R&D firm called Block Science. Block Science is essentially a institutional a placeholder for me wanting to do work that's neither fully applied nor fully theoretical. Like I noticed that I could do things in a sort of academic regime where I felt like I was solving toy problems, which might be relevant to an application at some point, but not directly. And on the other hand, uh, industry settings were sort of overtuned towards the problems immediately being faced by teams. And I wanted to do something in the middle. And so to my current research, my in the middle work, um, it revolves around probably two main uh, foci. The um, first one is what I call generalized dynamical systems. Really, that's a name for it. But it is a generalization of the sort of standard 
you know, controls and signal processing framing around, you know, real numbers, complex numbers, and sort of these nice continuous things. In a crypto setting, we have really clear, explicit, dynamical systems over state machines. So we tend to get hybrid systems. We tend to get like multi-scale hybrid systems where you're enforcing some control rules at one level, but there's a degree of freedom of individual agents making their own choices at another. And so our, our generalized dynamical systems work basically encodes the same meta pattern of a control system, which is sort of some inputs that come from some function, you know, G of X yields U and you plug that U into a state update F of X comma U and you get a new state or in a continuous system, you have a differential. Um, but the, the gist of it is that you're describing the world in terms of inputs and then system plants that sort of mutate the state and you get new states. And it turns out you can describe an arbitrary state machine this way. And in particular, when you're dealing with crypto economics and blockchains, you get this nice property that you can enforce the admissible inputs. You can basically say anything that doesn't do what I don't want didn't happen. And so you get this extra layer of mathematical formalism where you can declare explicitly the set of actions that are legal, which kind of yields um, a, a differential inclusion. So you get the, the set of things that could happen or the, 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 the changes in the system in terms of these ever expanding um, sets of reachable states. And um, what's really cool about this is we use these kinds of methods in robotics. And this is how you assert um, the sort of configuration space or like reachability conditions. And those exact kinds of mathematical tools turn out to be really useful for defining uh, properties of crypto economic systems where you can't actually declare the behavior of the agents. You could try to nudge them in one direction or another, but ultimately they can do anything they're allowed to do. So you would characterize the system in terms of the states it can achieve based on what the mechanisms allow you to do. And, and again, this like tethers really nicely to, um, I would say the mostly the robotics domain in particular, um, there's a, uh, a focus on being able to express these things in terms of dynamical systems and therefore make arguments about the conditions under which the energy sort of expands or contracts. And those are Lyapunov like arguments. Um, again, this is a building very much on the sort of systems engineering, signal processing, estimation, and control paradigms. And we've built this. Um, open source Python package called CADCAD, which is a implementation of these generalized dynamical systems that allows us to do um, computational experiments and actually, you know, A-B test mechanism designs or A-B test behavioral assumptions. And through extending our computational tools, we can sort of do actual science on our designs in, in the way that you would um, do science on a design of a physical system, albeit with an understanding that the set of things you have to make assumptions about is larger. So that we, we partition things into controlled and uncontrolled variables. Controlled variables are parameters or mechanisms we set or design, and uncontrolled um, things are related to behavioral assumptions or environmental conditions. And much like you might for you know, a bridge or a building, you sort of look at the conditions under the uncontrolled things where your design meets certain properties. And we call that uh, package or that, that sort of methodology CAD-CAD, uh, Complex Adaptive Dynamics Computer-Aided Design. And the research has really been about how to make this kind of workflow fast enough to be viable in a real world setting. So it's not just, you know, sit back and 
armchair about this system, but actually, as it's coming to life, modeling and iterating on the models rapidly enough to actually inform design decisions. So um, I guess that is one big focus of our work. The complement to that is more social. It is um, related to how these things that we design actually manifest and people experience them. Um, I do a little bit of collaboration with some folks from RMIT in their um, uh, sort of automation and society and blockchain groups, um, looking at the ethnography of digital infrastructures and talking about how these things that we build actually affect people. Um, And I, I make this point in the context of engineering because Um, whenever you have like an infrastructure that people are using, it's not good enough to just say that that it's been deployed. It needs to fulfill some function in society. And so the the effort to sort of validate from outside looking in as opposed to, or I mean, I guess inside looking out is another way to think about it, the relationship between your technology and its users and their experiences and even their safety, um, get on that in a second. Um, this sort of relates to how things are governed because ultimately you build and deploy an automation technology and it fulfills its function up until the point that you need something else or whether there's gaming going on and you need the system to be able to move in response to it or whether maybe it just didn't actually accomplish the intended function and you need to change some parameters or adjust the design in time in order to for it to continue to fulfill its function. Um, that kind of interplay between the observation of the um, current state of the infrastructure, the design, um, I, I really rely on some of the ideas that are presented by um, Nancy Levison in her book, um, Engineering a Safer World. And she's a systems engineer, aerospace specialty at MIT. And, you know, this particular book is one I give out to you know clients and team members to talk about how we manage the relationship between these things that we we design and build and operate and maintain with the sort of people who are exposed to them. And I personally think that this is a much more appropriate paradigm for, you know, not just governing, but also regulating um, these sort of blockchain infrastructures that like, we can't regulate them like quite like finance with hard rules, like, you know, that you check the box because there's just too big of a design space, but you can regulate them like you would engineering infrastructure where there are certain processes, due diligence, certain levels of um, like, okay, did you do these things and check that all of this is good? You know, have you made sure that the sort of end users of this system are safe from things that you couldn't reasonably expect them to understand or evaluate. The thing I don't like about the mentality in crypto right now, it's fading, but there's very much a like, if you can't check it to yourself, then just deal with it. And I think that the infrastructure analogy allows us to say that's not true, actually, as the engineer or even as the operating entity or the governing entity, you have some obligation to try to make sure that the system is safe for its users up to the point where they can use it in a user journey that makes sense for them without you saying, well, you know, you just drive over the bridge and you assume it's safe and it's your fault if it falls down because you didn't check. I'm like, you're kidding me. Like, I want you to be able to drive over the bridge and feel safe driving over it or I have no business putting it up. Yeah, that's such a helpful insight. Um, and it brings us back, if, if, I, if, if I may, to where you really start your uh, Foundations of Crypto Economic Systems paper uh, by looking at or characterizing it as a complex system. So maybe you could just say a little something about what a complex system is and how it informs your approach to crypto economics. 
Sure. Uh, complex systems is sort of an interdisciplinary lens that allows you to sort of step back a minute and look at the system from multiple perspectives. So um, I would say the most important facet of the complex systems mindset is that you really can't fully know what's going to happen. So you, you sort of relinquish this expectation that you can dictate exactly how the system will work. For sure, you can dictate how parts of it work, but those parts interact with other parts that you can't dictate. And thus, any number of unexpected, you know, emergent properties could could come out. And you can attempt to constrain that through something like the configuration spaces I mentioned earlier. But in general, you can't even begin to deal with that until you accept that degree to which you don't fully control this system. These are then the like cyber physical systems in the sense that um, you have to deal with the interplay between the technical layer um, and the computational layer and the social layer. And if you sort of try to overly reduce it to one of those problems, you could get something very different from what you intended. Um, I think the couple facets that we deal with directly, like network systems tend to be under complex systems, nonlinear systems tend to be under complex systems. And in, in a sense, the complex systems community works hard to take patterns and elevate them to their their modeled abstractions and in, in even still accept that those models are reductions or, or lenses or perspectives. And by taking many of them, you kind of fill in the picture and that helps you say, oh, okay, here's what this would imply if we think about it like this. And if I get a another such lens and it contradicts it, rather than say one of those things is right, I say, okay, these each give me a different view of the same phenomena. You know, what can I do to either find a Pareto optimal that trades off or what can I do to lift this up and elevate it to the point where I can see the interplay between those two effects and, and deal with them, right? Because as an engineer, you have to make subjective design decisions, trade-off decisions, et cetera. And this is another reason why I think that the crypto space really needs the engineering mentality because we need to move beyond this perception that the model and reality match or this perception that um, we can make it do exactly what we want. Instead, we have to look at this from requirements perspective and understand what are the trade-offs, what's feasible. Okay, if I can't have exactly what I imagined in my head among the things that I can make happen, you know, which ones are preferable. And, and it's those design trade-offs that I find, you know, my work with um, block science in particular, working with clients, like they often need help understanding that there are actual trade-offs, that they can't just program it to do what they want, that there are, you know, economic considerations that are akin to energy conservation equations, that if you try to take it out somewhere, the system's going to adapt somewhere else. And it doesn't matter that you want it to work like that. It's got, there's going to be some sort of conservation baked in somewhere and you'd be better off making it explicit and dealing with it than trying to force it out and having it pop up somewhere unexpected. Um, and again, this comes back to respecting those constraints and actually working with them to achieve the desired outcomes. And this is something that I think engineers as a like as professionals, as a discipline have been trained to do that maybe not so much in um, economics or even in computer science, where I think there's a tendency to sort of represent things, assuming that the representation of the thing and the thing match. Whereas an engineer has pretty much from the beginning taught that these are different and that you manage the relationship between the representation of the thing and the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so one of the ways of not reducing this that you point out in your paper is that is to attend to the multiple scales that are going on. You 
So maybe you could tell me a little bit more about um, the micro, meso, and macro. And in, in particular, maybe you can say something about how this uh, approach gives you insight into some of the emergent properties and, and what kind yeah. of emergent properties we might expect when we talk about crypto economics. Sure. So I think the trick to the micro, meso, macro frame is that it's actually kind of a fractal. Scale um, considerations are effectively you know, continuous in a sense. There's different points of focus where you can really zoom in and see what's going on or that model to kind of come clear. But ultimately, you're saying like, if I examine the decision making from an individual agent perspective, that's where we think about things on micro terms. And as I zoom out and look at, say, the the system or subsystem, that would be sort of uh, meso. And that's where I'm making policy decisions or designing mechanisms. And then ultimately at the macro scale, we're looking at the measurables and sort of saying, ah, in aggregate, the system seems to have these properties. And you can imagine a sort of feedback loop in these crypto economic systems where individual agent behavior effectively aggregates into global system state. But then if global system state feeds back through the mechanisms or incentives on um, on the agents themselves, then um, that loop actually doesn't, it's not really agent to agent interactions generating the emergent phenomena. It's the, it's the agent to system and system to agent um, that create a lot of the phenomena. And it's kind of cool to see how these things happen at the same time, because you could almost think of as agent to agent, agent as a kind of spatial distribution or like, you know, think in agent-based modeling terms, the agents competing and interacting with each other. But if the very shape of the game changes in response to the global state, you get a very different kind of dynamic game. And the example that I think is usually most um, uh, accessible to people is the, the Bitcoin hash rate controller, where in effect, the game of competing for um, Bitcoin block rewards amounts to these sort of hash races, which are effectively probabilistic proportional to your hash power. But because of the difficulty controller feeding back, it actually means that the game is changing itself as the players ramp up. And it creates this you know, potential runaway scenario where there's uh, always an incentive to add more hash power. But at the same time, this was arguably the design goal of the system. It wanted to maximize for security at a time when it had very little because there are very few um, miners. And by creating this economic incentive, you, the system drives itself towards ever more and more participants in the mining game. And, you know, this is actually one of those questions where you're like, okay, well, that was perfect for the early days scenario. But the question that stands out is then like, you know, to what extent is that the right solution as the as the mining rewards diminish over time, according to the mining schedule, and as the system gets larger and larger and larger, you know, you could argue that, um, you know, expanding the security by one, you know, one more miner with however many more Delta hash power in the race is costing a certain amount of you know, energy effort, et cetera, relative to the marginal gain in security, which is the system goal. I'm not saying more security is bad, but this sort of engineering consideration starts to say something like, okay, at what point does more hash power equal more security when maybe large, um, we'll call them like political blocks are, are controlling large fractions of that or like mining pools or even regions of the world. 
And we have to ask ourselves questions about, is that still the right policy? And I think in Bitcoin's case, it's, it's likely to go unchanged, largely because some of its power is in its, its, its relative immutability. I won't say it's complete immutability because there are changes that happen through processes um, that largely involve editing code. And you would say the politics of Bitcoin is whether or not the majority of the hash power operators are choosing to take code changes. But ultimately, that's still a governance process. And you could imagine a future where those operators chose to make decisions that um, impacted the, um, the hash game. But I would also argue that that could undermine the perception of its security, even if it improved its security. So it's a whole big pile of, you know, layers of technology, economics, and politics that go into the ongoing management and maintenance of institutions, even if those are decentralized institutions. Let's talk a little bit more about these design goals. So in your paper, you mentioned purpose-driven tokens. And so they're, they're able to obviously incentivize certain goals that get set out. But then you also sort of say, well, if we're being realistic here, we're going to necessarily have to be somewhat polycentric when it comes to uh, these design goals and recognize that there might not be any one social optim, uh, uh, optimum strategy here. What, what can you say about that, um, yeah. about uh, these design goals and, and these purpose-driven tokens? Yeah. So I think the first thing to deal with purpose-driven tokens is to sort of address some semantics where they, the purpose-driven token idea connects to this broader zeitgeist that tokens could be used as instruments for coordination of labor or effort, whether it's computational labor or human labor, and that we use the term purpose-driven tokens to really highlight the fact that the tokens are not so much the token itself, but they are tools for achieving some end. And you'll see the same constructs that we would call purpose-driven tokens labeled anything from a, uh, excuse me, from a native token to a protocol token to a utility token to a, uh, you know, a coordination token to a, like you know, the the names are are a plenty because all we're really saying is that the the token is effectively um, a how would you say it is re- it is worked backwards to achieve something rather than you, you don't drop it in and say, well, whatever happens, you say we want the following type of coordination to emerge. So let's try to work out what instrument will facilitate that. So it's not a piece of capital in the sense of I'm accumulating it for um, in, in a like sort of high moneyness way but rather something that is intended to be, at least in my opinion, um, commodity-like in the, in the sense of um, a productive capacity. So you would use a token design that meant, was meant to achieve some sort of co-production, some sort of export, and that although there's sort of incent- financial incentives implied, those financial incentives are really meant to kind of align vectors to get people moving in the same direction or moving together or completing tasks or you, know, you might have tasks that have multiple types of discrete effort that are different in the resources skills etc that you need you kind of get them to group up and do the thing together and mutually align their incentives um, maybe the way that um, a general contractor might with a bunch of subcontractors right there's money involved but like you need some um 
machinery to line up separate actors to work together to accomplish a shared goal. And so the way that I think about purpose-driven tokens is as kind of like um, automating away the layer of a, of a uh, management or administrative process that is required for aligning individual decision makers. That does involve um, economic activity, but it's not necessarily like a finance activity. It's more of a, I don't know, like, for, this is maybe a overly strong analogy, but like a factory floor where you need to coordinate it in order to accomplish some throughput, but less optimized and more resilient. So like factory floors are not inherently resilient to perturbations. If you move a, a piece of machinery around or swap the order in which two things are sitting, everything can go to crap. But if you're dealing with something that is uh, more decentralized or more organic, um, then you would potentially be quite resilient to minor perturbations or things that are outside of your control, one particular entity entering or leaving. Um, I tend to find that the analogies like the factory floor start to break down for that reason, but ecological analogies hold up really well. They tend to have more redundancy and more resilience. Yeah, and on, so to pick up on that note of uh, ecological analogies, Maybe you could say something about this very fascinating idea of a computational social science and, and how uh, a crypto economic system might be part of understanding the uh, social scientific world. Yeah, so I think for this, we need to orient engineering and science uh, adjacent to each other. So one thing uh, I like to do is think of, you know, Science is producing knowledge using technology, and engineering is producing technology using knowledge. And so they're, 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 they're sort of almost dual to each other. Um, and in this case, computational social science is effectively the science side of this equation. So when, when I was talking earlier about our computational models and complex adaptive dynamics, um, we are basically using methods in computational social science. So like observing real data, trying to understand phenomena, then basically abstracting those phenomena into models and then running those models through what is effectively counterfactuals or alternate worlds. Because once you input, once you impose or put in some new rules or you put those players into a new game of sorts, they're going to follow maybe similar heuristics or they might have similar characteristics themselves, but those same characteristics generate different behaviors because they're in a different world. And so the computational social science side of this is about taking the best practice of methods and tools in mixing social scientific observations with modeling and simulation, um, as well as data analysis to understand the social phenomena. And then we put that in its role within the design or the evaluation of an engineered system. So we create that feedback loop between science and engineering in practice, not just in theory. We exercise our scientific skills or our computational social scientific skills in the simulation of the uh, what might happen given the design, as well as for projecting uh, into the future of existing systems and analyzing interventions or, or changes. And it's actually a relatively well-known phenomenon in social science that you do a policy change and you often get a different result than what you expected, generally due to feedback loops that were unaccounted for in the models. And so our computational social science work is largely the complement to our engineering work.
I'd like to make a call to action with regards to engineers who might be listening to this, and that is to get involved because I think one of the biggest needs in the space is not just the engineering skill set, but the engineering sort of ethics, the engineering um, process and mindset, because I think we really do need, and I know I spoke about it a little bit earlier, people who are thinking about this from a not just the public goods in the sort of nonprofit sense, but like a public goods in the infrastructure sense, you know, thinking in terms of building things for the benefit of people, of the users. And I think that the engineers have the social institution for managing this kind of infrastructure, not just the technical skills. And so I would very strongly invite people who are at least interested in these new technologies to bring with them their existing expertise around, um, designing, building, operating, and uh, governing infrastructure. Thank you for listening to our interview with Dr. Michael Zargam. To learn more about the IEEE Blockchain Initiative, please visit our web portal at blockchain.ieee.org.